Welcome to the CTO Function Podcast. I'm PJ Kerner, and my goal here is to help people understand and make sense of this amorphous CTO role. I'd like to have our guests answer questions about what it takes to succeed at the role, and we explore how the job of the CTO changes based on the scale and the needs of the organization. I've done variations of the CTO job for 15 plus years. I still find that it's a challenging and multifaceted job. And I personally learn a lot by talking to other CTOs and hope you do too. So I'd like to welcome Sitar Harrell, who is the CTO and co-founder working at a very small stealth startup. My goal on the show is to have CTOs from all stages and types of companies. So what's interesting about Sitar's journey is that he's only at the very beginning of it, both from his career and his company but he's exploring the consumer fintech space and listening in, you can learn about some of the challenges that are there. I also realized what might be great about the show is to have people come back after a year or two and share what has changed from the first time they came on. But that's for the future. Also, if you're a CTO and you're interested in coming on and sharing your insights, you can find me on LinkedIn and send me a message. So let's get into the show. Welcome, Sitar. Uh, welcome to the CTO Function Podcast. Um, what I'd like to start off with is like to, for you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about um, your experience as a CTO and the, the, the organization that you're working at and, and what, you, what you're doing. Uh, and... ah, thanks so much for having me on, PJ. Um, so my name is Sitar. Uh, I am the CTO of a very small uh, kind of seed stage startup. Um, we are just uh, three co-founders currently. Uh, we've raised a little bit of money and we're uh, really, you know, we're racing as fast as we can towards launching something. So we are pre-launch, pre-MVP launch. Um, but uh, I uh, I think of myself as a CTO, um, but I think a perhaps more accurate title for me, uh, given that I don't have an organization under me, is uh, founder. Um, but given that, you know, my role is very much, uh, I'm the technical co-founder, um, I, I really do think that, you know, there's a lot about uh, me and about my experience that, you know, perhaps um, uh, lends an interesting perspective <laughs> to CTOs. Um, so we are, uh, our startup is, uh, it's a fintech startup. It's a consumer startup as well. So it's kind of a, an interesting space to be working in. Um, I've never worked on a fintech uh, in, in fintech before. I've worked on consumer for a few years, um, but it's been a really interesting experience and I've definitely been learning a lot. So, so it's interesting. There's, a, I've always found there's a big difference between B two B enterprise businesses and you know, and, and B two C businesses. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about like, what do you, what, what, what for a CTO that's doing a consumer business? Is there, you know, anything kind of unique about that? Um, oh, yeah. And 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 maybe if you haven't, <laughs> you, you clearly haven't done all of the different types. But I was kind of curious about, uh, you know, maybe some of the challenges at the at the on the consumer side. Yeah, I will say, you know, I, I, I might answer some of these questions with like my CTO hat, like turned to the side and like my founder hat also showing a little bit. But, uh, you know, consumer tech is so different than enterprise tech. Um, I uh, so I, I worked at Google for a few years as a product manager um, before uh, starting the startup. And um, I, I got to work on both enterprise and consumer products there, which was uh, great. Um, I'll say for a startup specifically, um, consumer has a very 
uh, it's kind of a different feeling. It's a different feeling to be working in a consumer space. Uh, it's kind of hard to describe exactly what I mean by that, but um, the the I feel that we have less control over our outcomes in a consumer world. And perhaps it's just that I don't have quite as much experience with enterprise, but uh, with consumer, you could build the best app that solves a real problem that everyone in your user testing, like, uh, like all the signs pointed to this being something that would work. And when you launch it, it could just not work. The market could be not right. And everything that we're doing because of that, you know, we need to take that into account, right? And as we're making decisions, uh, we think really hard about, you know, is this decision something that's going to be helping us get this in front of users? Um, if we, uh, you know, if we get this in front of users sooner, then we will be able to truly test, like, is this something that is going to work? And for now, we don't know the answer to that question. So I think that is really the biggest difference that I day-to-day notice and feel um, between consumer enterprise at our stage. Does that change how you pick technologies or do like, I mean, clearly there's a, all startups have the kind of race to get MVP and have to move fast. So like, that's a comment, but does it change anything else? And maybe not, but. um... Yeah. You know, uh, uh, we're actually in a, in an interesting, um, kind of structural situation, uh, even among consumer startups, um, because we're a fintech startup, uh, we have to work with a bank and there's a bunch of these compliance needs, uh, that have to happen in the run-up to us actually launching even an MVP. Um, and so I actually think that, you know, there's this whole angle of things of we should try to be launching something as fast as possible. Um, I think for me, actually, uh, in the specific situation that we're in, I actually maybe think of things a little bit differently. Um, we have the luxury of, I say luxury, it's not really a luxury, but we have this kind of block before we're able to launch of uh, all these compliance checks that have to happen before we're uh, actually able to launch something. And that means that um, uh, there is time, you know, there, uh, there is something that's blocking MVP launch that isn't development, uh, which means that I uh, am able to be a little bit more thoughtful about the long-term implications about the decisions that I make. So I think uh, my hunch is that if we were a consumer startup, maybe working in AI right now, and we needed to launch immediately, um, I probably wouldn't think as hard about, you know, like uh, the longevity of our security system or uh, ensuring that like uh, all the DevOps is going to be scalable to having, you know, dozens of engineers working on this. Uh, But I am... I really want us to launch and then for us to be able to update it. <laughs> like I want us to launch and be able to continue working on it. And for that, uh, for that to happen, I think we need to be, you know, we need to be mindful of the the longer term implications of our decisions. Yeah. And I think, I think I've always found that, you know, we've, we've been audited by, you know, companies who have forced us to, um, you know, force the technology to become more mature. Right. And I think on one hand, you could sort of see it as slowing you down. On the other hand, if you see it as kind of, you know, building a stronger foundation, uh, those, those are those are two sides of the same coin of that. And it sounds like for that, those compliance regimes for you will 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 trigger that. I think that's I think that's actually a really good thing for a company to have to go through because yeah. you can just go fast and skip all that stuff. Then crack sort of I, I well I think crack sort of here later. No, I, I actually I couldn't agree more. And in fact, uh, an exercise that I had to do uh, a month ago was. 
uh, for these compliance checks, we needed to have uh, well-documented out policies for information security and um, all sorts of things. Uh, and these are things that my friends who are uh, founding companies, they're not going to think about them, <laughs> certainly not in the first year, uh, certainly not before launching an MVP. But um, taking the time to actually think about our policies and make sure that you know we have these systems in place uh, should I get hit by a bus, for example, or uh, should you know the unimaginable happen, um, adds an incredible amount of robustness. And honestly, it makes me sleep better at night <laughs> to know that we have this foundation of um, you know uh, policies, things that are going to work even when an individual isn't around. Um, so I'm actually really grateful that I was forced to do that. Um, I would not have chosen to do that if I didn't have to. And I think that the impact was very positive beyond just needing the compliance check. So, so let's get back to the CTO function. So, so, so tell me a little bit about, and so this is your, your early in your CTO journey here. Um, but tell us what, like, what, what for you, what the CTO, you know, job is and, and, or what you think it's going to evolve into as well. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, uh, again, I'll, I'll answer very honestly. I mean, uh, I wear a lot of hats at the company and every day is a little bit different. Um, I think uh, the the largest hat I've worn so far has been um, like system architect. Um, I think also just the nature of having this big runway before we're able to actually cut our MVP uh, means that I've been thinking really hard about like, what are all the components that need to go in place to, to architect the system? Um, but also I wear the developer hat. I'm uh, I'm definitely, you know, I have the most time to be our like main developer. Um, the CEO has lots of work that he's he's doing, uh, although he's developing as well. Um, but uh, uh, developer, architect, um, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, another like big job that I have is kind of trying to predict what technical issues are going to be in the future and what uh, directions we're going to need to head technically in the future, uh, what sort of investments we should be making now so that we can, you know, recoup them later. Um, and uh, I think another uh, another big one is probably just like uh, like project management, honestly, just making sure that this is something that gets built and that all the different things that need to come together happen. Um, yeah, those are those are the big ones. I think looking forward, I think as I as we hire more people, hopefully, uh, as we hire more people, I think the role is going to change significantly. Um, I'm actually really excited for that. <laughs> I think um, I uh, I think the role is going to become a lot more organization management, and instead of kind of designing and building this system and and our MVP of our product, uh, it's going to turn more into kind of designing the uh, organization that's going to be able to continue launching products and um, dealing with issues as they happen, et cetera. Um, well, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Cause, uh, when I was talking with Rob Fry, who was on a few episodes ago, he sort of talked about the, like, you know, one thing, you know, it's like, do you need a CTO? Do you need a chief architect? Do you need a VP of engineering? <laughs> those things like for him, those things all were, you know, close together and companies sometimes who are looking for CTOs don't, or might be not might need a flavor of all three of those things at some levels, right? Um, yeah. And it sounds like from you know, like you have all like and it's it at the early stages. This makes perfect sense. You're kind of <laughs> doing a bunch of those and and more. Um, but yeah. that's what early stage is. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. 
so what do you think some of the skills are that CTOs need to be good uh, at the mm. role? Yeah, I mean, uh, there are definitely lots of skills. Um, actually, I think uh, a step to the side a little bit, I actually think every CTO is different, obviously, and every person is different. And there's lots of different ways you could approach this job. Um, I think skills that uh, I think have I've found have been useful for me uh, have been uh, I think a big one is just, you know, communicating, um, finding creative ways to communicate. Uh, um, uh, we, uh, I, so my startup is distributed. So uh, my co-founder lives in Zurich. Uh, so we've got this whole time zone thing uh, in addition to being remote um, and finding ways to communicate well, uh, to not have to repeat decisions, to, um, to just be a streamlined team. I think that's like... I, I truly think that's one of the most valuable things I provide on top of being an engineer. Um, and uh, communication is a big one. I think another big one is, um, you know, like a sense of ownership. Maybe it's not a skill so much as like a commitment, but, you know, feeling real ownership over the product um, and uh, feeling like, like if something goes wrong, it's, it's, it's your fault, not your fault, but it's on you to fix it or to find some solution for it. Um, I think that leads to taking a lot more initiative and in problem solving and seeking out problems. Um, I, uh, maybe it's, I'm a, I'm pretty anxious sometimes when I approach problems. I'm, I'm very, I wouldn't say a pessimist. I'm a realist, uh, when it comes to especially execution, you know, uh, and the things we expect, uh, 80% of the work happens in the last 20% of the time are, you know, you the last 20% of the work takes 80% of the time. Um, and uh, I really think that trying to foresee problems before they happen um, helps save you some of that precious time at the end. Um, so I spend so much time just really trying to imagine what the future is going to look like and imagine which problems we're going to run into as we deploy, <laughs> as we start, you know, productionizing things. And I've been trying to, if not solve those problems, try to understand as much as I can about the space so that when the time comes, I'll be equipped to solve them. That's good. I, I, I want to go back to the, um, is there something, is there a specific kind of communication technique or something you learn to sort of do? Because I think, um, I think that's definitely a good one, but like what, 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 it, what worked at the really kind of small level? Because that's not going to work at, you know, thousands of people of course not yeah. <laughs> um but 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 you know for those out there who are you know kind of early stage or thinking of those what 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 are some tips for them or yeah i think you know for communication i mean communication is a really broad thing obviously um i think for us you know we really struggle with um uh crossing the, the hurdle to communication when there's kind of a big obstacle to communicating something it usually just goes unsaid. And I think we feel this the most in the remote aspect of the work. Um, you know, when mm -hmm. you're in person, just the hallway conversations, just mentioning something offhand, there's so little barrier to mentioning it that you'll mention the small things, right? And I want to find a way as we are developing this product for us to be able to kind of have these hallway conversations um, without being in the same country. And that's really hard to do. So we've been trying a bunch of different things to reduce the friction to communicating something. Um, one example, this isn't so much in the hallway conversations, but just like reducing friction is, um, 
we have a single meeting stock. We don't do docs for different meetings. We just have one giant long meeting stock. And it's it's almost like a whiteboard really, where you can just jot down whatever you want. And everyone uh, has the agency to, to go write things there. And just having a single place that you know that if you think, oh, I have a thought, I might want to write it down. There's a single repository that is the first thing that's going to jump to your head. It really reduces the, the friction to actually writing something. like. When you have to start a new doc and add like a template and write, fill in the header, um, all those things are those little hurdles that are going to make you, that, that are going to reduce the, gran like increase the, uh, the minimum granularity of an idea that you write down. And I want us to be capturing everything, right? Like if you, if you have an idea, we should be communicating about it. Um, so that's a tip and trick. Certainly there, probably not going to work at a large company, but. There, there was a, there was a, um, an a hundred percent remote company I worked at like 15 years ago. So we didn't, we didn't have Slack. We had, we had IRC and, and what was interesting about that is cause there were no hallway conversations. There was, there was like the, like the, the servers were in the CEO's um, garage somewhere. Um, and, um, but everything was on like you, 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 and, and it was global. Like we had people all over the world who sort of worked and, but you wow. woke up in the morning and everything was there. And there was a certain amount, like there was good communication because of, because everybody, like everybody had to write the stuff down or else you weren't, you weren't, you, it wasn't going anywhere at all. Uh, it was interesting. Yeah. Uh, it was interesting. I do find, I do find interesting. I, as companies are sort of starting, what new good communication patterns work for companies that are distributed and sort of yeah. remote, which you'll see, which you see more of these days. Yeah. Um, I, w I will say, I do think with communication, uh, everyone's different also. And I think especially in the small stage, we have the luxury of adapting our communication style to our personal communication styles. And uh, I am actually really grateful that we spent a lot of time talking about this and we spent time uh, finding a solution that works really well for us specifically instead of trying to apply some general solution that might work for, you know, a 200 person company to us. I think that's actually, I think that right there is just a really good insight. Spend time talking about how people feel about communications and make some conscious decisions as opposed to just kind of letting things, you know, sort of happen. Yeah. I think that's, 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 a, that's great. Um, mm -hmm. One more on the accountability thing. I think what's interesting is as organizations grow, you have to, I mean, you have a great amount of accountability being a founder, right? As all founders do. And, but then you need to transfer that accountability to the next set of employees. And I do think the early set of employees, it's sort of like they become the founding team uh. and so on. And well, so, okay, maybe I, maybe it's a question I should be asking others who are later about how accountability, which is actually easier to sort of infuse in the organization at an early stage, how it sort of, uh, sort of works out. So, or maybe that's a question yeah. for a, another time. Um, you know, uh, honestly, I feel like if you don't mind me like, trying yeah, to no, talk yeah, about yeah. this, uh, yeah. Even even with the three of us, I think um, there are often problems where um, none of the three of us will take uh, ownership over it. And there's kind of like a diffusion of responsibility and no one's owning it, right? And uh, those situations I think are extremely dangerous when there is something that it's, it's unclear who's owning it. Um, I think that that is the way that things fall through the cracks and that's the way that you 
make a mistake that would have been avoidable uh, if someone was actually paying attention to this thing. Um, I don't feel like I have any good like tricks for how to uh, to to avoid that, but um, uh, I, I think that like this diffusion of responsibility issue at least is something that even uh, even small teams face. Uh, oh, it makes sense. Uh, yeah, yeah. Everybody just if there's a thing, you know nobody picks it up it just you know, as you say falls through the cracks that's the problem yeah being being um, aware of it is important so yeah i will say honestly even um i'm, I'm all about communication and i think uh, it's it's hard but i think it's possible actually for us to have honest conversations about the way we interact with these sorts of things um, and I think like being honest with my co-founders about, you know, I get really anxious about things falling through the cracks. So I might take ownership of things that you feel like uh, shouldn't be mine, uh, but it's because I try to scoop up everything uh, just so that nothing falls. Um, and then, you know, hearing their response and like just understanding how the other person works, I actually think is really the, the critical thing to solving this sort of problem. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think we're, we're, we're all on the same team. And we're able to find a solution to this problem, right? No, um, and that's another example of talking about it. Like it's kind of a meta comment about talking about how you do it to help solve those problems. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, I have another question I sort of ask folks and it's, it's a, so, and there's no good answer to this. It's a breath versus depth question, right? Mm. Because in the in the CTO role, um, like how do you sort of balance those two things? How much how much breath? How much depth? And and again, uh, at your stage, right? Because yeah. the answer kind of goes and evolves. Oh, as the you know as you get bigger and and bigger. Um, yeah. What what do you think? What do you think about that question? How do you how do you think about it? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I I can definitely imagine it being like. Uh, perhaps a little more relevant at a larger size, but I do think there is a relevance here. And maybe uh, to start answering it, I'll say um, there is a certain amount of depth that I have to do. Um, like I have to implement all of the code. Uh, so at the end of the day, like um, I am the engineer who's writing all the code. Um, however, I'm also a founder and, you know, I was a product manager for three years and um I have a product instinct and I find like, you know, I care about this product. And so naturally, like I'm in, uh, I'm designing with our designer and I'm thinking up different business models and things. And I think that it's actually really good for me as a founder and as a CTO uh, to be participating in these more uh, broad conversations. Um, and um, I do think that it's a balance though. I think that um, getting too broad detracts from my ability to really focus on the depth and make sure that, you know, the technical stack and the system is uh, well honed. Um, but uh, I do think that, you know, breadth is key and I wouldn't be able to build this product well if I wasn't uh, living and breathing the product and trying to participate in different decisions, um, experience kind of the sales side of things and fundraising. Um, and that helps a lot. I do want to say, I think there is a, a limit to breadth, however, and uh, I think spending a lot of time in the domains that aren't strictly the one that I need to be drilling down into, uh, first of all, it, it obviously distracts from the drilling, but it also, I think, um, it, uh, it sometimes 
this is maybe a, a broader startup thing, but it's often hard to let go uh, when you have an opinion that differs with your uh, with your co-founder. And uh, I think for me, one of the big challenges has been uh, letting go and like trusting my co-founder to make the decisions and being okay with my breadth being reduced a little bit um, and having like uh, things that I'm explicitly not owning that it's um, it's his job to take um, from from top to bottom. Um, yeah. No, that's interesting. And I, I, I was, it's, I, I, there's not a way to do this, but it would be kind of interesting to sort of plot that breadth for the need for breadth versus depth over, you know, over day, time, you know, over time. Um, uh, because even for myself, I'll say, like, there are times when, you know, I've gotten, well, I'll say too broad, right? And had to return to certain depth to truly understand a problem. And then you sort of want to take advantage of it. And you kind of like, you, you, you get broad and deep and you have to go back and forth. Um, yeah. Um, you know, even over the years. Um, okay. Uh, what about uh, another question about, do you, do you have any philosophies or frameworks that you use as the CTO to do mm. that, do that, do that job? Um, yeah, uh, I definitely have lots of philosophies. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm sure I use frameworks. I mean, we, we have like an agile development uh, cycle that we use, um, yada, yada, those sorts of frameworks. Um, I think in terms of philosophy, um, I'm a big believer in uh, leadership is um, leadership is all is something that comes from within and uh, or maybe from within is the wrong way to describe it. But like a leader is not someone who someone else says is a leader. A leader is someone who truly like loves the thing that they're leading and uh you know, does everything like does what's best for that thing. So I try to really, you know, I, <laughs> me and my co like we call our project the baby. Um, and I think anthropomorphizing it a little bit like that uh, reminds us that it's this thing that has like its own life and it's its own entity distinct from us. And, um, uh, you know, uh, I think, uh, the philosophy that underlies this is it's my job almost to like parent this baby. So that's one kind of uh, broad philosophy of, you know, it's my job to tackle any problem that might happen. Um, I think from a, a, a kind of tangential lens, um, I talked a little bit about, you know, future proofing our whole system. Um, I think a lot about making sure that the technologies that we choose are going to work not only for me as an individual coder, but also eventually when we have more engineers um, that they're going to scale to a broader team. So I think, you know, making sure that uh, we're thoughtful in the decisions that we make um, is a, is a philosophy there as well. Um, and then I think also just, uh, you know, making decisions, it's hard to make decisions as we all know, and it's hard to make decisions in a stressful environment. And I think that, you know, committing to moving quickly and, um, not lingering too long on any given decisions. I think that's a, that's a hard commitment to make, but I think it's an, it's an important one. Um, so especially, there, yeah. Is there anything, so given all those things, does, do you, so, cause 
one thing a CTO has to do is make technology choices. You choose what you put in your stack, what you you know yeah. you you adopt. Given those things you just said, does that make you think about those choices in any in a in a way in a different way? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. You know. <laughs> uh, so yes, it absolutely does. Um, there's. I think I would make a. I have a certain amount of expertise with certain you know, types of frameworks or languages. And I think the decisions that I make about how I would build the MVP would probably be pretty different than the decisions that I wound up making um, because I considered things like, are we gonna be able to hire engineers to work in the language that's needed to build this backend? Um, are we going to be able to, uh, you know, is this gonna work as we scale out to um, 100,000 users? Um, uh, is this something that, like, are, are we going to be able to uh, enforce our policies with this um, sort of system? And uh, I got the advice early on to, <laughs> um, and I think this is good advice, and and I really try to to stick to this, but uh, to be okay with tech debt, and to be like okay with having to make trade offs, and um, you know, every time you make a decision, you make a trade off. But I think I really try to lean towards. Um, when I'm picking a system, I try to lean toward one of my rules of thumb is like, is it going to be easy to hire someone to, to work on this? And um, because, you know, it's all greenfield, like there's no pre-existing stack. Uh, we're making the decisions from nothing. Um, I think I have the luxury of incorporating that as a big part of the decision-making process. Um, but yeah, I know there's, there's lots of factors. And I think um, if, that, if it was just a race to the MVP, I think I would be approaching this quite differently. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I, I mean, picking tech, picking tech based on who can do it, right? There could be the right thing, and yeah, there's no developers for it. That's uh, that's 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 an interesting, important observation early on. Um, I'll tell you one more thing about the tech debt thing. When you said that, what what rang with me is, I did something that was that, so we made we we kept a record of it, right? So. For me, I, I I find this if I write it down somewhere, then I can take it out of my brain, right? So <laughs> at least when it came to tech debt, we sort of said, okay, we're gonna make this decision. We kind of said we're gonna accept it. We put it, we put it, we put it in, you know, you know, a ticket, and we sort of said why we were making it. Um, and then at some point down the road, we just circulate those things. Some of them we said, okay, well that that was you know, either that aged out, like it's no longer a thing because we recycled whatever that was or, oh no, we get a need to get back to it. But I found writing it down and putting it on the side helped the acceptance of tech debt, right? Mm. It was, it was not, it was not, it was not hidden debt. It was, it was debt that was deliberately decided on and, uh, you know, sort of agreed on. So yeah. that, that was a little helpful to, to, to do that. Um, yeah, that's that's uh, fantastic advice. Actually, I think we we don't have a great bug tracking system right now, and we're just hitting the point with um, product maturity that I think it's important to start having that. So, um, this is kind of an obvious question, but maybe it's a question about the future. Like, our, it, but it's an obvious question right now because you're so small. But the question is, how does the organization measure your success? as a CTO, right? And you you like yeah. I mean you got you got to you got to get to that MVP you're making all the technology. So so right now it seems clear what the answer is. 
Um, but how do you like, maybe it'll change or how do you like, how, like, yeah. what, what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely going to change. Like right now, my, I think my one success criteria is launching something that works. Um, it doesn't have to be, you know, perfect. It's got to be robust enough to work, but it's, it can be buggy. Um, I think in the future, and again, this is pure speculation. Um, I think that it's going to be, you know, if I'll, I'm, I'm going to be successful when the product is successful at the end of the day. Right. And I think, um, you know, that that's a very indirect way to measure, you know, my day-to-day -day impact. Um, but I'm imagining as this role evolves into more of a, um, organizational management role. Um, I think that, uh, I, <laughs> the success of the, uh, the organization's ability to build a good product, I think is going to be the thing that ultimately I am accountable for. Um, and I think, you know, having, making the right decisions on technology and picking the right, uh, everything like that's going to be important as well. Um, but I do think that fundamentally at the end of the day, the success of a CTO comes from how well the technical organization is running. Right. That's my, that's my guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, that makes sense. Well, and, and it's an evolving thing as for, for, yeah. for, for anybody. Um, what about, there's, there's another question I ask, which is about internal versus external balance. So right now, everything, mm -hmm. so everything is, you know, internal, you're kind of in that stealth mode uh, and so mm -hmm. on. It's all internal. Um, what is your, t what, like, how do you feel about that after you kind of, you know, launch and get to that, get to that point? Because I have met some CTOs who, well, they, they have different balance points on that when they, when they, when they get to, when they get to the, you know, the, the point in which they, which they, you know, do it. And there's either some who are very external um, and then they have partners who do the more internal part. But I was just kind of curious what yeah. your sort of take, like put yourself, you know, you know, year or two down the road. What, 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 what do you, what do you see yourself as? Um, yeah, I do think, uh, I mean, I do think that this is very use case specific, um, like company specific probably. Um, oh, and, and, and whatever you pick now, it's probably, it, it will be what the company needs. Right. And you like, cause we all have to do what the company needs, but, um, but what do you like? Maybe it's maybe it's how do you see it? Like, and the company might yeah. need something different, so it might be different. But but what? How do you sort of see it? Yeah. So uh, I mean, uh, I think we're 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 in consumer tech, right? So there's not necessarily a need, and you know, we're in the consumer space, not in the enterprise space. The product that we're selling is something that like end users are going to use, um, and the relationship we, we do have a, a bit of a B two B relationship, but it's much more. Um, uh, we're not selling businesses a product. Um, and I think that like, I think that I'm going to wind up leaning very internal, um, in, in this company. Um, I think there will be an, an external component of it. I think, you know, understanding our users is going to be so critical for, for me and, um, uh, understanding the needs of our merchant partners is going to be really important as well. Um, but uh, I do think at the end of the day, like I, I think that my job is going to be running this team really well and making sure that like we uh, are making the right decisions uh, about technology and that we are making the right product decisions. Um, and I view those things as really internal things. Um, there's definitely there's obviously like the external aspect of each of those things um, of you know 
making sure that you have all the information that you need in order to make those decisions well. But at the end of the day, I think uh, the external the external actions are motivated by an internal need. Okay. Yeah, and, then, yeah. and maybe that's something we'll we'll check in later and sort of we'll see check in on that, that one. You you have mentioned this a few times about and and about doing product management and. I mean, you're doing software development right now. I sort of asked the where do CTOs come from question, mm. um, but 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 maybe there's a like for you, like what like, I mean, given you've done development and product management, you kind of sit on both sides of that fence, right? Like, yeah. um, you could like what like like what what you know. Tell us your tell us a little bit about your journey to that kind of uh, <laughs> that kind of point. Um, sure, yeah, I'll I'll tell you about my journey, and you know, I mean, maybe you're alluding to this broader question of where do CTOs come from, and it, uh, yep. I think the answer is lots of places. Um, uh, for me specifically, um, so uh, I got a CS degree, I got a master's degree, and um, I decided to try out product management right after college. And I went straight to Google. They have uh, this early career product manager um, kind of rotational program that I joined uh, that is specifically made for engineers uh, who want to try out product management um, or who want to become product managers. Uh, so I did this for three years. I worked on Google Maps. I worked on Google Photos and uh, Chrome OS for a bit. And I really enjoyed being a product manager, but the... Uh, I think at the end of the day, what I like is solving problems. And you solve lots of problems as a product manager. Uh, the types of problems that you're solving tend to be more organizational problems with these really long runways. Uh, and I enjoyed that a lot, uh, but I really missed coding. I really missed coding and I really missed thinking about how things are gonna work. Um, I, uh, as a product manager, you know, you think a lot about like uh, what you're gonna build and like what, uh, what it's gonna be for users. And as an engineer, you know, I'm thinking what, what we're going to build as a founder, but uh, most of the time I get to think about how we're going to build it. And that's the thing that really like gets me up in the morning. Um, so for me personally, I, uh, I think the, the transition back to a more um, engineering style role, I think was really natural for me. And uh, I'm really grateful that I spent the time as a product manager. I think it taught me a lot of skills uh, around like, you know, we've been talking about communication a lot, um, communication and ownership and accountability. And all the things that I think are going to, uh, you know, hopefully are going to make me a good CTO. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, I think, you know, I, I'm a coder at heart and um, I'm excited that I get to do that more. So that's where I come from. And I think that CTOs come from all sorts of places. I, I do think I do think that the answers do sort of have a pattern of doing many things like like it this is because this is it is a varied job and i think it comes from people coming from wanting varied experiences and wanting to sort of see the different sides of the problem so i i, I think your your path is is an example of 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 uh you know many patterns that sort of you know uh, get yeah. ctos to evolve to um do you ever look at like other CTOs and um, and sort of like trying to understand maybe your future path in terms of what what they might be doing or what they might be what what you might be observing. I'm just 
uh, is your question like, you know, what do I observe from other CTOs or? Yeah, I'm just, well, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, I guess like, like you're be, being earlier in the journey, right? Mm-hmm. It's what do you, what do you see out there? Or, or maybe it's confusing or I don't know, or maybe there's like so many different ones and, you, and uh, <laughs> or, or maybe it's like, I'm just going to make my own path. I don't know. What do you, what do you sort of see in terms of, yeah. of, 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 of that CTO space. Yeah, I will say, I, I, I mean, I definitely look at other CTOs. Um, I think uh, it would be f- reinventing the wheel is always a way to wind up in a ditch. And I think that uh, I don't want to like, you know, recreate what the CTO role is. Um, so I definitely do look at other CTOs and try to learn from the, uh, the diversity of approaches to the role. Um, uh, I do think that, you know, uh, like I said a few times, uh, I think generally when you, like the average person who is a CTO um, is doing a very different job than what I'm doing, right? And uh, I think it's actually really useful for me to be observing those CTOs who are doing a different job because it allows me to incorporate the elements that I wouldn't ordinarily think of as things that I need to be doing right now um, and to kind of be thoughtful about those things as I'm making day-to-day decisions. Um with all that said, I think there's definitely, you know, a little bit of uh, my hubris that um, makes me want to kind of blaze my own trail a little bit with um, technical leadership, I'll say. And I do think that I have a pretty unique style um, uh, of, of technical leadership. And um, my hope is that as this unfolds, I get to learn from really experienced CTOs like yourself and uh, while simultaneously also kind of uh, finding the ways that I'm best suited for, like finding the strategies that are going to work best with my unique set of skills and my unique approach to uh, leadership in general. I will say, so I'll give you some advice about how to not take advice for a second. It's, I found that when you know, when, when you have people who are further in the journey for you, they forget the, the, the time. The, so they forget the there's, there's the right advice for the right time. Okay. And like time either gets mm. compressed or it gets confused. Right. And yeah. I, you know, you look back and you say, Oh, well this thing worked. And I found in, at least in, in some advice that I've gotten, it was like, they are right, but they, but they're, they're, they're absolutely right. But it was the wrong time for that thing mm. to occur. <laughs> and and it was took me a little while to because I didn't want to tell them they were wrong, and then I tried some stuff and it didn't work, and and, and then I realized, oh no, this the problem is not the advice, it's the timing of the advice, right? So it's a mm. right like, so you don't want to look so far down the road, right? Because that 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 person like has to really go back in their brain and remember yeah. what that was. Um, it's almost like you got to find you know people who are you know, a number of years ahead in terms of their journey, but not too far ahead. Um, right. <laughs> ho- hopefully they'll be able to sort of go back in time a little bit more accurately, or at least yeah. know that's advice. Like there's not, there's right advice and wrong advice, but there's right advice and then it's right advice, wrong time advice, which is, mm. uh, yeah. which is a problem I struggled with personally when I was, you know, yeah. as I was doing this. So. Yeah, that's a, that's a really, really important point. And there's no, you know, there's no like one way to solve that problem, right? Um, I think uh, uh, 
my approach, I think, has been to try to have a lot of different advisors with all sorts of different backgrounds. Um, and maybe, uh, maybe you'll be my next advisor. Yeah. Triangul <laughs> and triangulate the, all the answers to, uh, exactly. You know, sort of yeah. And... The answer is something in the middle. Um, yeah. No, oh, I'm happy to, happy to continue to talk about this. This is, uh, this is my, like my passion about understanding what this thing is. They call the CTO. Mm. Um, so, so uh, can we, can, let, let me, let me ask you, and maybe, the, so if we talk about tech for, we have, we have throughout this, but if we talk about tech for a second, do you, do you and, and, and again, the, maybe like, what do you think is really undergoing a significant change right now in terms of the technology space mm. and, and maybe what's, what's driving that change. And then what I always find Whenever there's a change and something driving it, there there are fun challenges that come out from that change, and you either might be having to deal with those challenges or something. But what do you sort of think yeah. about that now? And probably you're just for the record, your startup is probably addressing one of those things. So maybe <laughs> you know, beyond so it's beyond that. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean <laughs> it's funny. Like there's there's lots of new things happening in technology today, and. Uh, we are definitely capitalizing on a few trends, um, which I'd be happy to talk about if you want to talk about those specifically. But no, whatever you're, whatever elephant. you're, whatever you're willing to share, that's what I. Uh... Yeah, I definitely. I mean, I want to talk about the elephant in the room in technology right now, which is AI. Um, I mean, AI is. Uh, I, uh, I, I haven't been through like I haven't been working in tech as we've undergone. Uh, one of these, you know, paradigm shifts that have happened in the past 30 years. Um, and so this is the first time that I'm experiencing something that, you know, people uh, credibly seem to be calling uh, a paradigm shift. And perhaps it's not, perhaps it's all, you know, um, I think I will say, I think, you know, in, in April of 2023, it is undeniable that AI is going to have a, a large impact on um every industry. Um, I think it's going to have a large impact on the tech industry. And um, I think, you know, we don't work in AI, our products, uh, we're not building an AI product, um, but we've been leveraging um, AIs like ChatGPT, like um, Stable Diffusion, um, Transformers in general. Uh, we've, been, we've been trying to incorporate this into our product. I think, you know, whenever there's like a big technology shift, uh, I think it's critical that you learn how to use it. Or, uh, or you don't, right? And if you don't, you're we're gonna fall behind. Um, I think for most people, I think the impact of AI is going to be less like it's changing the uh, fundamental nature of our jobs, and more it's uh, changing the tools and the mechanisms that we have to do our jobs. And uh, one thing I wrote was <laughs> I wrote recently a, a, a like. A, there's, there's a scripting language in Google Sheets, and I wrote a, a script that adds a function to call out to JADGPT. And just like knowing, like understanding the potential power of this tool um, and like actually integrating it into our day-to-day -day workflows, even in places that it seems like it might not be useful, has had an incredible, incredibly powerful impact. Like, you know, we have a lot of copy we have to write, um, and uh, we consulted with a UX writer, but at the end of the day, like ChatGPT is helping us. Um, it's, it's helping us solve problems. ChatGPT, it's helping us uh, data mine. 
Um, something that it was able to do for us is like find uh, websites associated with brands, for example. There's lots of tasks that you wouldn't think that it's it would uh, be successful at because it's just a language model. But when you actually try it, it, it it's uh, it, it it does something that ordinarily would have cost like thousands of dollars to do for operators. And um, we're very careful about you know. Uh, I have a background in, in machine learning and I worked on ML fairness at Google for a bit, but uh, it's, we, we, we try really hard not to overestimate it and to be very careful with the results that it produces and to always have humans checking them. But the amount of time it takes for a human to check uh, chat GPT mined data compared to the amount of time it would take a human to mine that data, it's night and day. And it, it just changes everything for us. Um, the, the way we do work uh, has been fundamentally changed by this. Um, so I'm really, I'm really bullish on AI, uh, not necessarily in like, you know, taking our jobs or changing the world, but just like you and me as people working in tech, like the, this new tool that we have um, that we can apply to our day-to-day -day jobs. Now it's interesting. We talked about, um, we talked about, I mean, one, one position is, you know, this, these, these these transformers can, like rewrite things right they're they're rewriters there is a certain amount of people of of creation that okay things we call creation which are really just rewriting and it's a little bit it's a little bit humbling to sort of think about well, okay maybe i overestimated what i was you know actually doing there and and yes a machine can do that faster um, but then there are certain things that i think are true creation yeah. like true creation that maybe these things can't do and 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 there is that balance between that and and i yeah. agree with you 100 percent on the not overestimating and i always i i i you know i have i have a blog that's coming out about like if you think about ai being 50 percent right if you just assume that right and and, mm, and yes and there's a set of problems that only need to be 50 percent right and especially yes, in generative exactly. art right and and that's where that sweet spot is it, it might not solve high precision, high accuracy problems. And maybe it could, but I'm not like, but if you think about it as things that don't need that, like what, you know, what can you, what can you, yeah. you do? And there's a lot of, you know, as you said, copy that's sort of written. Um, I even, I even uh, asked, I said, okay, I, I'm interviewing CTOs. What should I ask them? And they <laughs> came out with a set of questions and I will be on, like, um, and there were like, I think there were 10 questions and Part of what I ask, I think like nine of them I have good variations of already that I and but one of them was like, oh, well, yeah, that's an interesting um, one. And I'm going to add it to the add, add it to the list for, for, yeah. for next time. So so even that one, like, yeah, it made it made it made this job uh, like, uh, you know, a little bit better. Um, it was yeah. it didn't solve it all. Um, but, uh, you know, and I still believe some of my questions are better and getting at the root of things. But but it did a pretty good job. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and actually, I think having a very realistic uh, expectation of ChatGPT um, or transformer models in general uh, allows you to reason about them in a much better way. And when you recognize that, like, we'll be able to keep 50% of this, you can kind of, like, change the parameters of your problem to meet the solution that you have for it. Um, so, like, for example, with, with UI copy, a function that I wrote that I, I use it so often is just... Uh, Here's a string. Give me 20 variations of this string in like all sorts of different voices. And then I just scan through that and I take the components that sound good and I build a final product myself. 
but just like you know the the gener- the the raw creativity of the generation um it's like i'm a cyborg right i'm yeah. working with this machine to solve this problem fine variations that's a good one uh, i like that yeah so any final thoughts before we do our little lightning round at the end uh yeah I, maybe just one thought on, uh, you know, AI is huge and AI is, is changing everything, but uh, it's not the only thing that's changing, obviously. And, you know, uh, while uh, I think a lot of people might be perhaps distracted by AI as uh, and might be missing some other technological revolutions that are happening in the background at the same time, uh, I personally think that a lot is changing in fintech right now that's going to um, enable like a whole new way of interacting with our financial system. Uh, so I think that's super exciting. But AI is definitely, it's the elephant in the room for sure. All right. Thank you. So, okay. Speed round. So, so what's one book that you, that you recommend to people? One book that I recommend. Okay. Um, I'm going to recommend a fiction book. Um, Great. Um, Exhalation by uh, Ted Chiang. It's a collection of short stories. Um, beautiful, beautiful science fiction. Uh, I love sci-fi. I think like sci-fi gives us a lens on the world that it helps us build empathy with you know different universes that exist. Um, and it's a really beautiful collection of short stories. I love short stories. That's a, that, that. So I will definitely look at that one. Um, so uh, a movie TV show that you, that you. Okay. Movie TV show. Um, TV show. I watched. Um, uh, okay. Movie. I'll say, you know, this is an obvious one. It just swept at the Oscars, but uh, everything ever all at once incredible movie if you haven't seen it yet uh you gotta go watch it um i i cried so much in that movie i'm not embarrassed to say that i cried in that movie um and uh it was beautifully made um and a low budget yeah. as well too which is cool i i i i i we uh i took my son we went to the movie theater to watch it because it felt like one of those movies you had to sort of be immersed in rather than like you know see at home so uh yeah you know, enjoyed it like that um yeah. And yeah, there are there are some interesting things about the, you know, the, the how they made it. Uh, I watched some YouTube, uh, yeah. YouTube's on that. And, yeah. And then what about a, what about a what about a tech that you love? And this is might be more one that just kind of you know we, we talked about the AI stuff, but just just something that's kind of uh, maybe used in uh-huh. your day to day life. Okay, this is going to sound super nerdy, but I promise you learning about the existence of this and mastering this has dramatically changed my life. So uh, I worked at Google for three years. Uh, I actually learned about this before joining Google, though. Uh, and when I was in college and throughout high school, like I used the like Google work, workplace, workspace, uh, the Google suite of, you know, docs, sheets, etc. And I learned that there's a scripting tool. <laughs> Uh, for all of these uh, that integrates a bunch of APIs and connects like scripts. Like it's just, it's JavaScript. It'll run in Google servers and you can do all sorts of random things to docs and sheets and every Google product. It's called Google app script. And I, I feel like a wizard a lot when I'm coding, nothing quite makes me feel like a wizard, like Google app scripts, like the things that you can do, the productivity improvements that you can have when you have total control over your suite of tools it's it's mind-blowing like i 
uh, I feel like, you know, the tools that we have to use, I was a product manager. Like I know when products are bad and I know when, like, I know how to build the perfect product for myself and Google apps scripts allows me to turn Google docs and Google sheets, which I use every day, all the time into something that is streamlined and works perfectly for my use case. Um, so I built so many things in Google Apps. Actually, I taught a class at Google on Google Apps Scripts. Um, so it's uh, if you don't know about it, it and you use Google Workspace, um, it will improve your life. I'll be honest. I never. I mean, I, I use, but I I never heard about it before. Um, so definitely yeah, and they good, don't uh... talk about it. And the documentation is great too. I I could talk all day about Google Apps Scripts. All right. Well. Thanks for coming on the show, and I appreciate the time. Um, you know, it's been great having this conversation, and uh, I enjoyed it very much. Yeah, thank you so much, and thanks for giving me this opportunity. I really enjoyed it. I look forward to watching the rest of the episodes. All right. All right, thanks.